Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Despite a banking crisis, the Federal Reserve, as well as the Bank of England, have both raised borrowing rates to continue to fight persistent inflation. Boeing is taking more charges in its effort to deliver KC-46 Pegasus tankers to the United States Air Force as the service changes its tanker plan. NATO nations continue sending equipment to Ukraine as Russia's advance uh, against Ukrainian positions stalls. Australia joins Norway in grounding the NH-90 helicopter, the latest setback for Europe's cargo helicopter program. Australia last week ordered Apache attack helicopters to replace their troubled Tiger aircraft, and Virgin Orbital needs refinancing. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back aboard. Uh, it's great to have you back on. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Always a pleasure. Always enjoyed every Sunday, Vago. Thank you. Uh, indeed, as you say, Richard, it wouldn't be Sunday if it uh, if it wasn't for us all getting uh, together. And Sash, thanks very much in particular for joining us from literally the middle of nowhere in, in Iceland to be able to join us. So thanks very much. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium is sponsored by GE Aerospace and Helicon Chemical. Our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Bell and our coverage of the Navy League's upcoming Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show were sponsored by HII as well as Helicon Chemical. Uh, guys, again, welcome back to the program. Ron, start us off. Uh, there was a perception that the Fed wouldn't raise rates because of the banking crisis. <laughs> that doesn't seem them uh, seem to have stopped them from raising rates. How did the group perform uh, against the broader market? You know, the, the Fed sort of couldn't win either way. Um, you know, some folks were arguing they shouldn't raise rates. Some folks were arguing that they should. Um, had they not, it could have maybe sent off signals that something worse is afoot than maybe they want people to perceive, so on and so forth. But uh, so they raised 25 basis points, which was largely in line with what people thought they would do before the last couple of weeks when uh, the regional banking thing sort of spun out of control for a while. Um, broadly, if you look at the group, uh, defense did better than, than commercial. Um, the, the, the stock that was up the most for the week of all of our large caps uh, was Northrop Grumman. Uh, it was up uh, just under 3%. And the S&P uh, was up about uh, 1.4%. Uh, Lockheed Martin was largely in line with the, the market. Raytheon was behind. Uh, Boeing, Boeing underperformed for the week. It was down almost 2%, uh, I think, on some of the news you, you mentioned before. Uh, the real champ for the week was um, Virgin Orbit. Uh, it was um, really volatile, but ended up closing the week up 24% on, on various news and so on and so forth. Bombardier had Investor Day that I think we'll talk about for a moment, uh, and it ended the week up about 8%. Uh, when you look at oil prices, they drifted up a little bit. WTI was around 70, Brent was 75. The VIX pulled back. Um, it's that you know, indicator of volatility. Still, you know, in that between 20 and 25 range last week when we spoke, I think it was 25. Now it's 22. 
it'll bounce around. So, I mean, that's probably not all that, that meaningful. And that's about how the market wrapped up this week. Ron, we're going to dive into uh, all of those points in a minute. But before I go to Sash and ask him for what the week looked like uh, from a European perspective, I want to get your sense and what investors uh, are thinking uh, about uh, deliberations in, in Washington, about debt relief. Uh, there are some GOP members who are now tying this to uh, the banking uh, uh, the banking crisis and saying, um, you, you know, we've got to debate uh, a debt ceiling increase uh, more carefully. There are those who are proposing some pretty significant uh, across government uh, cuts, as well as, quote, defense reforms, which is uh, often a way of, of saying cuts. Uh, how, how's the street interpreting those messages at a time when there was this sense that, hey, look, you know, we've got bigger challenges. Let's just get a debt ceiling increase uh, cleared and let's let's get to increasing this defense budget a little bit more significantly at an important time. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I think, you know, the, the psychology on the street is probably one of two things happens. Um, you end up with uh, a CR for um, a finite period of time or you end up with a CR for the whole year. Um, one or the other. I don't think anybody on the street really uh, thinks that the U.S. would actually default on its debt. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's in anybody's calculus yet. Um, so if that were to happen, I would imagine that would drive a lot of volatility. Um, <laughs> but but it's just, you know, it's sort of how long are we going to be in a CR, I think is the open question. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it certainly is interesting. Although, you know, you and I were having conversations the last time and the big problem was right at some point, the banks start to bet against the, you know, bet against there being a debt deal. And then all of a sudden, right, I mean, because of the weird psychology, people are like, well, I might be able to, you know, it's an end of the world scenario, but I could make money off of it, right? Uh, so it's going to be certainly interesting to see what kind of shocks and messages Wall Street manages to deliver to Washington, which is what motivated us last time, right? I mean, we still had a debt downgrade that we haven't lived off of, uh, that, that we haven't lived down. So, um you know, it's it, the psychology certainly is interesting. Uh, Sash, walk us through the uh, Bank of England rate rise and sort of broader European market performance and how the group performed against it in Europe. Bank of England rate rise did not cut through particularly to aerospace and defence stocks in Europe, um, and uh, nor does the you know the um, uh, plans of the European Central Bank to uh, continue to uh, raise rates either. I mean. I, it, it, it may be a coincidence, but Ian, if you look at the three weakest stocks in uh, in our sector in Europe, or four weakest stocks in our sector in Europe, um, Kemring, Dasso, Hensolt, Kinetic, they are all all but one um, small stroke mid caps. Um, they are all defence companies, and you know, in general, the defence stocks underperformed a little bit the civil stocks. But to be clear. The sector as a whole was up 3.7% last week. Civil was up 4.9%, defence up 33 um, So, you know, 3.3%, you know, any portfolio manager would be would be happy with that. But you had to be concentrated on some of the bigger caps. Brian Mattal was the standout, up 8.2%. Uh, and that was after their, um, I think, very good results the week before. Um, uh, but they're, you know, BA Systems up 4.3%, um, Kongsberg up 3.7%. But, you know, you had strong performance from a couple of the defence stocks and Talis was up, sorry, from civil stocks and Talis was up 5.1%. So it's a bit difficult to find a pattern here. I didn't think interest rates are cutting through at the moment, um, in particular because the vast majority of the companies that we look at either have no requirement to refinance any debt this year or in the case of the defence stocks, don't have any debt at all. So they're not affected by uh, the interest rate cycle. 
investors we talk to are just incredulous about this whole argument about the US debt uh, ceiling, that that should be an issue and that that can be serious at a time when um, there's a war in Ukraine, which effectively has become a proxy war. Um, and when, um, you know, even if that wasn't the case, the US got very, very big fish to fry in uh, the Pacific. You know, um, investors just don't believe uh, that it's possible for Congress to uh, push the issue of the debt ceiling too far uh, if you're going to defend your country against, you know, one and a half pretty major threats at the moment. Um, in Europe, I think the, the, the issues that are going to continue to play out through this year is going to be the degree to which defence budgets are currently a lagging indicator of uh, the, the, the commitment to broader European defence, but also the commitment to Ukraine. And European governments are still on the back foot about just how much Ukraine is going to require in terms of support, how much that's going to cost, how long the process is going to be, and the degree to which supply of equipment that even a few months ago had been seen as being in some way escalatory, uh, certainly by, by Russia, will become probably entirely acceptable um, you know, by, by the second quarter, uh, I suspect. So you know, we're, we're paying fairly little attention to what politicians say because they're just going to change their mind. Uh, let me ask you uh, one follow about uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, outlook, and we can talk a little bit about the Paris Air Show. I mean, it's it's really remarkably right around the corner. I mean, we're three months away from it. Um, there is this um, sense that Emmanuel Macron is a very important leader. He has a global uh, outlook. He is uh, very uh, important as a counterweight to a rising French right. I mean, right. I mean, the concern is uh, that if it's not him in power. Uh, it, it might well be Marine Le Pen, who's the politician who polls better, much better than he does now. I mean, right, he's in the 20s. Uh, he survived a vote of no confidence. He drove through this pension reform, but demonstrations are uh, bad and getting worse. There's a garbage strike on. It's been a winter of strikes in Paris. Uh, and, and now you've got tear gas and increasingly violent demonstrations with signs that say kill the king. And as Jim Townsend on, on Friday uh, reminded us, it's, that's not aimed at King Charles III. It's aimed at Macron being regarded as behaving as, as, as a monarch in Fifth Republic uh, France. Um, you know, what are the stakes here? Um, and what are the disruptions we can expect? Because you can't have this sort of kind of nationwide demonstration without having some sort of broader aggregate economic impact production impacts uh, and the like, given that France is such an important industrial European defense and aerospace industrial power. Yeah, I'm not sure about that last. I think France has learned to cope astonishingly well with um, a semi-anarchical uh, approach from uh, certain proportions of the population. Historically, farmers have always been the, uh, the biggest pro uh, problem in France, but, you know, fishermen have not been uh, too far short. And, uh, you know, heavy industry has always had its, its fair share of of strikes. But I do think that the protests against President Macron are becoming, I mean, they're clearly very, very personal, but actually there's a much broader thing, which is that it's possible to argue that France has never felt entirely happy with the structure of the Fifth Republic, which gives the president of France a greater degree of personal power than any other leader in Europe or indeed in the, in the States. I mean, you know, the fact that we're talking about uh, the debts, the whole issue of the debt ceiling in the states shows that you have checks and balances that still work, whether whether we want them to or not. Um, in France, the president has near unparalleled powers 
if he chooses to use them. And this week, to try to force the French to retire just a little bit later, um, he did do. And that has caused an astonishing um, uh, uproar. There was a, a very, very interesting op-ed in the Financial Times this weekend postulating that possibly what we might be seeing is the end of the Fifth Republic and that a, you know, the French political system, which has focused so much on a single individual, but has focused so much hatred um, uh, on a single individual, might actually be better off with a, a few more checks and balances of its own. That is a, an astonishing thing. Just one final point. Um, you know, Ma uh, President Macron is pretty you know, respected outside France, but you've got to be very careful. He's very much not respected in East Europe. In East Europe, he is seen as being a friend of Russia. He's seen as being somebody who, is put, who has pushed way too early for negotiations, for concessions from Ukraine and so forth. Um, he's not flavor of the month anywhere, I would say, um, east of the, of, of the River Ada, uh, or the, or the, the Oda, um, you know, into Poland, Baltic states, um, further into East Europe. Uh, I think, he, you know, there he, he you know, uh, there's a lot of suspicion of him. Uh, and so, you know, the, um, the, there'll be a fair amount of schadenfreude, I suspect, the further east you go. Uh, Richard, I want to uh, bring you into this. Thank you uh, very much for being uh, so patient. Uh, I was going to ask you about um, sort of the European helicopter industry, but do you want to weigh in on any of this stuff before we really quickly talk about the Australia, uh, the, uh, Australia's decision to follow uh, Norway in, in grounding the NH-90? And, you know, if you look at the Apache decision and what it means, many Tiger operator is very unhappy. I was going to ask you a broader question about European uh, helicopter industries, but uh, give us your sense on all of this stuff first uh, before we move to that. Yeah, you know, obviously looking uh, as an outsider, I, I completely agree with Sash that it, it was fascinating the suggestion that the Fifth Republic might just be um, nearing its end because, of course, anyone who's ever read the history of the five republics of France knows that the Fifth was kind of a, you know, <laughs> freakishly born of the Algerian crisis and whatever else. And I, uh, I can't help but wonder how much of... France's, um, shall we say, outperformance in European aerospace, to say nothing of the European Union, whatever else, is in part due to this uh, this very strong central executive branch. And would that change if indeed it became more of a, you know, typically scattershot, uh, you know, disseminated power sort of uh, European country? Um, I, that to me is 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 a big question to to watch here. Um, but, you know, obviously it, it, it doesn't directly relate to any particular program or company. I, I would I would commend uh, everybody in the audience to check out the Financial Times story because it's very good. And it was basically a condition in 1958 for Charles de Gaulle uh, to come back into power. And he said, look, you're going to have to give me a lot of latitude for me to be able to make a lot of decisions. And every French president has benefited from it. Although, you know, it's it's, you know, without launching a deeper governmental debate. Um, there's the sense, uh, you know, I mean, the, the same is often said and, and how, you know, about the British political system that it all rotates and revolves around and centers on London and emanates out of London, just like it does, you know, in Paris and emanates out of Paris, as opposed to a federal system, uh, for example, that you, you have in Germany, where all, you know, each, each one of the states has their own minister, president, et cetera. Um, but talk to us a little bit about uh, the European helicopter uh, outlook, what this Australian decision 
means ultimately uh, and, and where we're heading because both of these programs were supposed to be very long-legged, long-lived uh, efforts that, that were going to give uh, a bit of an edge to European industry over a prolonged period of time. And that's not exactly how it seems to be working out. Yeah, that's right. You know, you look at the NH90, particularly the uh, NFH90, the integrated, um, you know, maritime patrol anti-submarine version and the Tiger. These were effectively um, what was Eurocopter's first efforts at truly integrated uh, combat helicopters. Before then, of course, they'd had uh, missionized adaptations of existing transports or whatever else, or scout helicopters or what have you. These, they they went for the full, you know, the, the American-style Seahawk, Apache, fully integrated and missionized, and boy, are they not working out at all. Um, the Australian decision to just absolutely ditch Tiger and NH-90. Uh, the Germans are ditching Tigers, leaving the French kind of on their own and upgrading the uh, Tiger series. And of course, Norway replacing uh, their NH-90s permanently grounded after just a couple of years of service. This is catastrophic, basically. It, you know, Airbus still makes a good helicopter, a civil helicopter, and of course, you know, off-the-shelf adaptations. But the dream of doing a missionized machine, oh boy, that is crashing and burning, um, which is an unfortunate analogy. Um, the Meanwhile, they're also talking about a next generation uh, European. I mean, that, that to me is bizarre. Like, okay, this one didn't work. Let's start over again rather than fix what we've got. I don't get that. The Germans are kind of going their own way. I believe they're getting some kind of, yeah, missionized adaptation, scout attack of, uh, I think, a 145, you know, just another stuff, something off the shelf rather than something missionized. You got to wonder. Meanwhile, Augusta Westland this week, uh, Leonardo, of course, uh, flew another uh, Finis prototype, AW249. The 149 being the kind of, you know, the first European missionized integrated attack machine didn't do badly, obviously, selling to Turkey um, and in the running elsewhere, and they're determined to do another generation of it. So they've had a bit more luck with that. But from the standpoint of Airbus, uh, not so much. Uh, so, and meanwhile, of course, it looks like, you know, Sikorsky and Boeing are just, I should say, Lockheed Martin, Sikorsky and, and Boeing are coming roaring back with the, you know, the, this 180 unit omnibus Apache order and uh, plenty of Seahawk and additional Blackhawk orders. And of course, plans for V280 next generation. So you got to wonder about the outlook for the bulk of Europe's military helicopter industries moving forward there. Number one and number two between Airbus and Leonardo in civil, but in everything else, boy, it sure looks like it's a, it's a downward slide. And I should uh, point out, right, I mean, the Swedes were so frustrated that they uh, had, uh, uh, you know, Blackhawks uh, there for a while while they were waiting for their uh, NH-90s uh, to, uh, to arrive. Uh, Sash, how do you regard all of these developments as somebody who watches the European uh, helicopter ecosystem pretty closely? I, I think it's incredibly sad. And I, mean, I don't disagree with Richard's overall thrust about the, you know, what's the death of the European military helicopter industry? Um, uh, certainly, if it's not the death, it's the it's a very, very consistent demise. And that is that's equally concerning. The, the, there's always three problems or it seems to me that, 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 that there are there are three separate issues that Airbus helicopters in particular, but any helicopter company has got to look at with their products when they ha- when they have um, customer issues like this. One, where was was the, the product just 
wrongly designed. Two, um, uh, was the integration done badly and is being done badly? And then three, is the customer support lousy? Um, I've got no doubt at all that Airbus helicopters customer support for military helicopters has been consistently bad for the vast majority of its export customers. And they have only themselves to blame for that. But, you know, everything that the Australians have said, and, you know, the Australians are at the end of a very long logistics line, but that's no excuse. If you sell to Australia, you know you have to deliver. Airbus helicopters clearly didn't and did a bad, did, did a bad job until way too late. Um, and I suspect that that hasn't um uh helped albeit the distances are, are way closer in in norway either but then you know working back from this the missionization nh90 i think has always had a problem with missionization because nh90 you used to be able to have in pretty much any flavor any shape any size you wanted you want a high cabin you can have a high cabin you want a low cabin you can have a low cabin you want you know x radar y radar z radar you can have any radar you want you can have dipping sonar non-dipping sonar it was just, you know, complete catalogue and there was no configuration control. And hence, I don't think they knew how to support all these things and they still didn't know how to integrate them. Well, that's really unforgivable. The final issue, which applies uniquely to Tiger and not to NH90, I think NH90 is actually a pretty good airframe. Uh, I realise I'm a, in a bit of a lonely position saying that, is where the design was faulted. And the Tiger design, the original sin, and it is that, is that Tiger was designed too small, too light, with weak engines. It's asthmatic. It was designed for Central Europe. Um, so it's got the MTR390 engine, even with the MTR390E, which was the big upgrade originally for Spain and then for, for Australia. This is a helicopter that just doesn't carry a great deal, and it doesn't carry it very far. Um, and if you want to carry stuff a long way and to carry a great deal of it, whether it's Hellfire or 20 millimeter or rockets, all just have an immense amount of endurance. Even though you don't get great speed with it, you go and buy an Apache, you'd be brain dead not to. Because an Apache will just do more of everything except the speed bit. Uh, and the failure with Tiger to realize that you have to have a big machine with bigger engines and a lot of fuel, uh, a lot of fuel and hence endurance, that's what's done for that helicopter. And frankly, with that failure, it, <laughs> It's very hard to argue that I very hard to argue that it doesn't deserve to die because it's a it's a flawed design. NH90 isn't, but it's been dreadfully supported, and the integration has been consistently bad. Uh, it is uh, always a very difficult thing to do. I mean, that was one of the things that both impressed me about uh, the variety that they were offering, but also right one one of the concerns on how it is you can deliver is that kind of variety, manage to control configuration uh, and ensure uh, supportability at the end of the day. Uh, and, and alas, um, you know, history is full of a lot of very good products that didn't get the support uh, or, or weren't supported terribly well. Uh, and of course, sadly went uh, the way of the dodo. Um, I want to uh, urge the audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, Ron, I want to uh, uh, bring you back uh, into this. Uh, speaking about troubles, uh, Boeing uh, addressed the Bank of, uh, uh, of America conference and revealed more charges on the KC-46. Um, what did management say and what does it mean ultimately? 
Yeah, that related to some supplier difficulties on the 767 has something to do with the center fuel tank, I believe. Um, that also flowed over to um, the, the tanker itself, not just the 767 freighters. Uh, and it will require some, I think, rework on some aircraft that were delivered and new delivery aircraft. Um, they it pegged um, the charge at... Um, you know, less than half a billion, but they didn't get anything more specific than that. So, you know, call it somewhere between 300 million to 500 million in that ballpark. Um, and uh, during during the remarks at, at the conference, um, the management really kind of focused on execution, 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 and then kind of mentioned this. Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of par for the course. I think the market was largely disappointed on it because at the investor day, you know, they said many, many, many times they had de-risked the defense portfolio. There wouldn't be any more charges coming. And then, you know, here we are just not too far after the investor day and we get another defense charge, you know, probably for a very good reason, you know, so on and so forth, something in the supply chain. But um, it doesn't give investors confidence when you say it's de-risked, it's not going to happen, and then it happens. Uh, speaking about uh, something not going to happen and it happens, uh, Wall Street Journal is uh, reporting that American uh, is um, um, suspending uh, its Philadelphia Madrid route uh, for a few weeks in, in May and early June, citing delivery delays for the 787. Uh, what does this tell us about where 787 is and where the company, you know, and whether the company is turning a corner on this? And uh, uh, Sash and Ron would just like more broadly to kind of take a quick recap, because unfortunately, we keep hearing things like this uh, from uh, the company. Um, you know, what's, what's your sense on where we are on 787 and whether or not they have their arms fully around that problem as well? Well, they, they got certified again to deliver the aircraft, right? I mean, they weren't delivering it for a while and they started delivering it again. That was probably the root of the American delivery mismatch. Um, and it, there'll probably be a couple others because it was, uh, I think, a surprise would happen in terms of the latest. I guess it's always a surprise, but like a surprise on a surprise this time. Right. Um, so, so here we are. I mean, they they have stuck to their target for the year of seventy to eighty seven eight sevens. Um, we'll see. We'll see if they get there. Um, and our forecast, we're at the lower end of that target. Um, and if they get there, you know, good for them. We'll see. Um, and I think it's it's really probably too early to tell. But once we get to you know, kind of you know, past the air show mid year, that is. Um, we'll have a better idea on, you know, what they can effectively deliver in terms of uh, 787s. Uh, Sash and uh, Richard, uh, anything you guys want to add on, on on this? Actually, Sash, why don't you go ahead? And I have a slightly different question for you, Richard, uh, on, uh, on Tanker to sort of bring this around. Go ahead, Sash. I think the risk is still on the downside for pretty much every single program uh, delivery target for this year, Boeing or Airbus. I don't think the um, I, I think the supply chain is clearly not robust enough yet. And the manufacturers have been probably over, overly aggressive in, 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 in their ramp targets. Um, uh, you know, if, if Boeing can deliver that, that number of 787s, that's fantastic. But I've, I, I, I would share with Ron the, the wish that the wish to stay on the on the low side of, of the forecasting range for this year. Richard, um, I want to uh, bring you into this and, and ask you about the terms for the bridge contract. At the Aerospace Warfare Symposium, Andrew Hunter, uh, the Air Force Acquisition Executive, announced that, uh, you know, KC 
uh, X, Y, and Z are going to be uh, disbanded. The service is going to push ahead for acquisition of the 149 or so uh, airplanes, then seek a bridge of 70 some odd airplanes before going to an entirely new airplane that, that would uh, debut in, in the mid-2030s. Any sense whether the terms for this intermediate group of airplanes is going to be cost plus or is it still going to be um, right fixed price because, you know, and, and what does that mean financially for Boeing, right? I mean, if it can readjust and try to recoup some of this, uh, 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 some of these costs, because as we discussed, it looks like Boeing is really benefiting from a lot of work being put into its hands, whether through the E7, whether through F-15 EXs uh, and, and uh, the like, uh, right? F, the uh, E7 contract being a cost plus uh, contract, interestingly. Anyway, what's, what's your sense on how this is going to play out and whether or not the company can recoup uh, some money ultimately on this? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's good and bad news, I suppose. Um, the one hand, it, I have little doubt that the bridge tanker is going to be some form of cost plus, because if you look at the KC-46 program structure, um, I believe the last 80 are already some kind of cost plus. It's only the first 80 or 100, I forget the exact number, that are part of the fixed price money losing horror that is KC-46. But then eventually they transition to something a bit more generous. That might not have been enough to make them whole. I mean, remember at this point, when they get that $500 million expected right off in the first, uh, in, 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 the, in the coming weeks, that'll, uh, that'll raise it to 7.3 billion in losses on a $4.9 billion contract. How do you even do that? Uh, but, you know, the, the 80 or 100 remaining in the KC-46 current contract, again, should not be money losing. And then I don't think the Air Force is going to have a whole lot of negotiating power, nor are, if they had that power, would they be likely to exercise it? Because obviously, if the Air Force is only interested in 80 or so that are fixed price, you know, obviously that doesn't give them a great deal of negotiating power. It's not like they could introduce an entirely new fleet type before KCZ. And then on top of that, you know, you've got this desire, as we discussed last week, by the Air Force to kind of make Boeing a little more whole. Industrial policy may or may not exist, but I think there's this recognition that BDS needs to be sustained somehow, hence E7 and everything we discussed. Uh, so I don't think there's a whole lot of risk that bridge tanker contract being some kind of cost plus. Um, uh, Ron, uh, Ron, do you want to add anything uh, to that uh, before we go on to Bombardier, uh, Virgin uh, Orbit, uh, R Russia War, and maybe a little bit on unfunded priorities in the in the ten or fifteen minutes we have left? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and, and quickly on the Boeing front, one of the things that they did reiterate at, uh, at our conference was that you know going forward, um, uh, fixed price contracts are off the table. So, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what that, that ultimately means, but, you know, the quote unquote investments that they made uh, previously by doing fixed price contracts, particularly development contracts, um, that, that won't happen again. Um, so uh, I think that's where we are from a, from a Boeing strategy period. So I think strategy perspective. So I think that might suggest that the, you know, the tanker contract going forward would be cost plus. Um, right. So, yeah, so I think that's, I think that's where we are on that one. 
uh, and on uh, the uh, what Bombardier had uh, to announce and what was interesting about that. And everybody can take a bite out of that apple, uh, too, because they had an investor day. So walk us, uh, walk us through what they had to say, what you liked and maybe what you didn't like. Yeah, they, they hosted a, a virtual investor day uh, late this past week. Um, I think a couple of interesting points. Um, they they cut their margin outlook a bit uh, on supply chain concerns. They had not done that in the past. Um, and I think it was just probably a dose of reality on, on what's going on uh, in the supply chain. Uh, and then uh, probably one of the more interesting uh, takeaways, and they've been hinting at this a bit in the press and at some, some industry events, um, that they're pushing more into... Uh, the defense markets with, uh, you know, uh, how can I say, you know, com- conversions of business jets into um, uh, uh, electronic surveillance aircraft, so on and so forth. Right. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I mean you got to applaud that strategy, right? Because they're a monoline business and in business aviation, and it's a cyclical business and it's a very competitive business. So trying to diversify is, is of course, a good strategy. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I think probably just a bigger question there is, um, you know, ultimately how big that market can be for them. You've got other players in that market and uh, so on and so forth. Um, but uh, that was probably the biggest takeaway from the day. Um, uh, Sash and, and Richard, uh, your uh, take on it because uh, you guys are watching, right? I mean, that's a business uh, Saab uh, has been doing uh, well in. Uh, and, uh, you know, Richard, want to kind of get your broader sort of market sense uh, on what that means, because there are a lot of other people who do that kind of work, right? I mean, Gulfstream has been expanding into the special mission business as well. Sash, why don't you uh, start us off and then uh, Richard, get your take on it before we go to uh, Virgin Orbit, where I've got to get uh, both Ron uh, and Sash's take on as well. Yeah, the, the, there's two different approaches to the special mission aircraft market. There's the uh, aircraft OEM converting aircraft and adding other people's bits and pieces. It's very hard to do that. Uh, I would suggest, uh, um, and retain a huge amount of the IP. The more complex the aircraft is, the more complex the mission is, the more the content is going to determine that the content uh, producers end up doing more of the systems integration. So the, the Bombardier Globals are very, very good platforms for special mission aircraft. They have an excellent um, performance at altitude, uh, and they're also very fast. Gulfstreams, similarly very good. Dasso has a very good position uh, at the high end of the Falcon market. Um, but once you're trying to add very large radars or an extremely large intel- uh, uh, electronic intelligence gathering system, the electronics guys tend to take over. They tend to be given the prime contracting. So look at the uh, Pegasus program in Germany, three very, very sophisticated ELINT aircraft. These are going to be Germany's version of, of an RC-135, whether they get quite there or not, we won't know for a couple, several years more, but they will be very, very capable aircraft. I should, we should have no doubt about that. Prime contractor there is Hensolt. The conversion of the Bombardier Globals has just been farmed out to Lufthansa Technic. That is considered to be metal bashing. Similarly, Saab. Uh, Saab's Global Eye aircraft, which puts the Ari ER radar on top, uh, an air-to-surface radar, uh, underneath the aircraft on a big alien suite as well. Prime contractor is Saab. Anybody else, someone else can do the uh, conversion of the globals. But, you know, the airframer, it, again, this is this is metal bashing. It is not a, a high-end portion of the contract. So I would be very cautious about thinking that this is a sort of untapped pot of gold that Bombardier is going to be able to uh, access and 
you know, that nobody else has seen so far. I think the electronics guys are very, very well aware uh, of quite what an attractive market this is. And they are much more capable of managing the prime contracting and the systems integration, in my view. Richard, your your sense on uh, sort of the market Bombardier's opportunities, Ray, I mean, as, as Sash uh, and Ron both said, I mean, it's a terrific product that has, um, uh, you know, the, the size right, the speed right, the operating environment right. Um, you know, sort of just give us your play, your your sense on sort of the market and how it's evolving as everybody is being drawn into it, right? And it, you know, and, and look at Boeing's position in this as well, right? I mean, once you're doing the E7, that opens the door to a whole bunch of other airplanes and, and it's been, you know, sort of core to Boeing's uh, strategy as well. Yeah, there's a number of interesting things going on. Ultimately, I tend to side with uh, Ron about Bombardier's prospects, you know, and uh, for a number of reasons. One is that undis- indisputably the big market leader in business aircraft special mission has been Gulfstream with the, the G5, G550, et cetera, series. And that's come to an end. And it's amazing just how many of those they sold in the special mission configuration. The replacement, the G500, G600 series, doesn't look like it's uh, quite as well designed for that uh, that role. Uh, so it could be that the increase you've seen in Global Express sales and indeed Challenger 650s for this market um, represents that weakness by Gulfstream. Maybe Gulfstream can rectify it somehow, maybe get back, but maybe not. And in the meantime, Bombardier is going to increase. It's, what, uh, what, it's do you, what do you, what do you, what do you attribute that to right in, in the airplane? Because uh, right. I mean, Gulfstream makes a great airplane. Uh, they've been looking at solidifying their position, right? They have the G 700 out now uh, as well. What is it about the replacement aircraft to the 500 that make them less optimized for this uh, mission. And again, I mean, you know, right. I mean, once somebody claws market share away from you without getting into a you know, Boeing Airbus uh, model, it's very hard to claw that back. And again, obviously we have Embraer in this market as well. That's, that's uh, been looking at sort of somewhat expanding its footprint as well. What, what is it about the airplane that makes it not suited or the changes yeah. that they would have to make to make it suited? I've heard it's a number of things. The most interesting is the landing gear placement. Apparently, the way uh, the G500, G600 landing gear is configured, it's not conducive to integration of uh, you know antennae or, or, or black boxes or whatever else normally would go there. Apparently, the G550 was just really perfect for this role. And when they came up with the 500, 600, they designed brilliant, brilliant, brilliant business jets for that category, uh, looking purely at the, the business jet role, but, but didn't take into account uh, configuration um, requirements for special mission. I can't guarantee that's true. I can't guarantee Gulfstream would dispute that. Right. But boy, the 550 series did incredibly well. And people were buying them to the bitter end you know, for that role, which to me says that they looked at the future and said, yeah, that's not quite as optimal as the 550 was. So it could be there's an opportunity here. And of course, the fact that they're developing this new facility in the former Learjet site, and they put J.C. Gallagher in charge, one of their their hard charging executives. So I think they meet it. I think they've got an opportunity. It's going to be uh, very interesting to watch. One thing I would just quickly add on to what Sash said, um, there is still this very clear, you know, battle between the big jet guys and, and the BizAv guys. And at one point, of course, the U.S. Air Force was looking and, and has actually acquired some Gulfstream 550s, predictably enough, in the surveillance configuration. But they've also concluded that having an integrated battle management 
aircraft along the lines of E-7 is essential too. And of course, next up, NATO. What will NATO decide? Will they opt for that sort of decentralized mix of UAV satellite assets and maybe some business jets? Or will they say, nope, yeah, big jetliner with battle management assets, just like we had with the E-3 Sentry. That's essential. We're going to keep that going. So the battle lines still are, are kind of undecided there. It's not like jet, business jets have taken over. Ron, I want to uh, bring you in on Virgin Orbit uh, for a second, but Sash, I think you have a last point you want to make on this. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think Richard's uh, point about um, you know the US Air Force still wanting to go for larger fuselage uh, uh, aircraft for battle management and so forth, that's really an issue of how many consoles you want to put into it. If you're going to do a battle management uh, role, something that requires a large number of uh, different operators doing multiple things, including managing multiple air-to-ground channels, air-to-air channels in the case of an AW. The requirement for all those consoles almost inevitably leads to you needing to use what we now call a narrow-bodied aircraft, in the old days would have been a, um, uh, a C-135 fuselage. It's very, very hard still to do that on a biz jet, although Saab's Global Eye is, is showing, I think, that you can get pretty damn close to it. Uh, but you know, heavy battle management, um, certainly favors a, a narrow-bodied aircraft there. Uh, Ron, uh, give us uh, your take on uh, the Virgin Orbit, uh, Virgin Orbit uh, refinance. And Sash, you know, you mentioned it uh, as well, so take a bite at that as well. And I want to really quickly wrap up on uh, sort of war-related news uh, uh, and, and, and what we've, uh, what we've seen, uh, that's interesting over the, over the past week, right? I mean, obviously Putin saying he'll put tactical, uh, weapons, uh, in Belarus. Belarus used to have Soviet tactical nuclear weapons, but that's another, another matter. Go ahead, uh, Ron. Yeah. Uh, Virgin Orbit reported, um, late last week, um, that they were, uh, furloughing employees, pretty much everybody, um, until they could sort things out. And it looks like they'll have some private investment. Uh, there's been some reports in the press into the order of maybe $200 million, and they're bringing back uh, some employees to move on to their next launch. Uh, so you've seen a lot of volatility in the stock, but it's it, it looks like it's maybe day-to-day uh, at, at Virgin Orbit. So we'll see how that goes. It's something we're watching. Um, you know, it's an, an interesting service that they provide. Um, so So we'll see. Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, definitely across your fingers uh, and, and hope uh, moment. Sash, is there anything you want to add to that before we go to the war? Yeah, look, I, th- I think the thing that shocked me about Virgin Orbit uh, over the last couple of weeks was just the speed with which they ran out of money and how brutal they had to be when, um, uh, when that occurred. You know, putting your, pretty much your entire workforce on, on furlough is, is clearly the prudent thing to do. But uh, boy, that happened quickly. And you can't keep stuff on furlough for very long before you start uh, hemorrhaging absolutely vital skills and, and IP. Um, the sad fact is that Virgin Orbit had a failed uh, launch from the UK, um, uh, almost certainly because of a component failure. And you know that was a binary event. Had that been a success, they would have found it very, very easy to get, uh, or easier to get new orders and new financing. Without that, um, things ground to a halt incredibly fast, and they, they needed to go out and, and refi. And I think this shows how precarious um, a lot of these emergent technology businesses are in aerospace, whether it's launch or uh, eVTOL. Um, you, know, you can't assume that you can value them the same way as you can 
uh, one of the existing OEMs because they just don't have the revenue stream, they don't have the cash flows that give them the resilience when they have a, a particular product problem. Uh, in, uh, indeed. Um, give us a quick uh, war update. Um, I mean, as I uh, mentioned, um, right, I mean, w- whenever things are not looking good for the Russians, they have a tendency of sort of trying to use uh, nuclear uh, rhetoric. We had the meeting between Xi Jinping uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin uh, in Moscow, somewhat inconclusive, some monetary stuff in it. A lot of anodyne, uh, rather, you know, I mean, more sort of endless friendship. Um, How did you sort of regard the week? Uh, What were the interesting elements of it? Right. North Macedonia decided to send its frogfoots, its SU-25s, four of them uh, to uh, Ukraine. Positive step. But Ukrainians still don't have as much as many tanks, airplanes and everything else that they need for their offensive, even as the Russians bog down. Help us make sense of what are some of the things that jumped out at you over the course of the week? If this was about uh, just shaping the war on a day to day basis, the Ukrainians would, wouldn't be bothering to focus on combat aircraft because combat aircraft aren't going to be able to change the, the, the military power that they can deliver anytime soon. You're absolutely right. What they need is more armor, more artillery. Um, actually, in terms of artillery, you know, the European Union is talking about spending or corralling 4 billion euros uh, to buy more uh, ammunition for Ukraine. And they're talking about buying, um, uh, or sorry, they, they are responding to a Ukrainian request for a quarter of a million uh, rounds of 155 millimeter per month, which is probably more than uh, Europe took in the whole of last year in, in terms of deliveries. So there, there is a, you know, there's still some momentum there, which is, uh, very, very welcome. But as you say, the Russians are responding. The Russians always respond. There's always a reaction. Um, I think the, uh, you're absolutely right, the, uh, the Sino-Russian summit was a little bit inconclusive. I do slightly wonder whether, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese, uh, if they didn't read Richard's uh, excellent article um, about the uh, vulnerability of the Chinese civil aerospace industry, they, they you know, it's, it's never too late to, late to read it and be aware of just quite how risky it is if they, um, uh, you know, if they were to support Russia militarily. Um, so I don't think Putin came away with the military support he wanted, but he clearly got the political support he wanted. Now we're seeing the uh, threat of uh, de- redeploying tactical nu- nuclear weapons to Belarus. I'm not sure that changes things, as I think you quite rightly point out. They've been there before. Uh, is it a, um, a breach of uh, previous non-proliferation uh, treaties. I'm not. I'm. I, I'm not cognizant of that, but it, it, it's a possibility. It's certainly designed to put NATO, put Europe off balance a bit. Um, there's also very, very amusing um, Russian rhetoric uh, claiming that the British supply of Challenger tanks with their uh, 120 millimeter ammunition um, means that we're supplying uh, Ukraine with nuclear weapons because the uh, uh, armor-piercing um, uh, rounds used depleted uranium. Um, that's a new one on me, but uh, it's clearly, it, you know, that will get traction somewhere in the world. So, you know, the Russians are, ma- are managing this still worryingly well. Um, I, I should also point out that they're apparently bringing back T-55 tanks, right? So nothing nothing good is going on if you're resuscitating a T-55 uh, and want to put them in the field. Um, I mean, it's, it's just sort of uh, astonishing. Um, just before uh, we wrap up, uh, Sash, you are in Iceland and you had an incredible story that 50 years ago, roughly this time, the entire world helped save the town that you're in from getting burned out by a volcano. 
yes, this is on the West Wen Islands, which are in the uh, the uh, pretty much the south middle of Iceland. Volcano blew up and, and erupted for over three months. It took five months for the whole episode to um, die down. And the only way that the flow of lava was stopped from wiping out both the town, um, but also blocking the harbour and effectively destroying the whole economy, was flying in uh, water pumps from around the globe and uh, uh, pumping, I think it's 6.8 billion litres, I mean, the biggest... There's a lot of inconsistency on the figures, whether it's litres or gallons of water, huge amounts of water to basically chill the, chill the lava down and stop it from playing. An astonishing, uh, an astonishing episode, which I was not aware until today. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, incredible. Guys, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. It wouldn't be a weekend without you joining us. Uh, always uh, grateful that you guys spend the time with us. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. As always, Vago, great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Yeah, really appreciate it, Vago. Thank you. A very special thanks to Bell for their generous support that makes this podcast possible every week and every day. Look forward to having you guys join us tomorrow for a look at the week ahead and our daily coverage. Thanks so very much and hope everybody's having a great weekend.